Welcome to Every Moment His, a podcast dedicated to contemplating how God's preached Word impacts every moment of our lives. This sermon was preached at Holy Cross in Kearney, Nebraska by Pastor John Rasmussen. Right, we're all here, we're all awake, we're all ready to get into Romans. We survived the time change, we all adjusted, maybe, right? Okay. Romans chapter 4 is what we're doing today, Uh, but before we do that, uh, just a couple words about where we've been, right? Um, We've kind of turned a corner in Romans recently. Uh, We spent the good part of chapters 1, 2, and 3 where Paul was just uh, methodically, step by step, just showing us that there's nobody righteous, right? Not one person is righteous before God by works of the law. We can't work our way out of our sinful condition, right? Uh, But last week in chapter 3, verse 21, we really turned a corner as we heard about the saving righteousness of God, what He has done in and through Jesus Christ to justify us by grace through faith, meaning that God would declare us not guilty, innocent, not because of what we've done, but because of what Christ has done. It's a major turning point in Romans. And so we're going to go deeper into what Paul said last week. Uh, you might remember from last week, uh, Paul, or Pastor Tim, Pastor Tim is not the Apostle Paul, uh, <laughs> uh, preaching on what Paul said, Pastor Tim shared with us from the text those five solas or onlys of the Reformation that we, are say, that we, we, we look for our teaching and doctrine uh, in the Word of God alone. Uh, that we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone, and God alone gets the glory. Those are the five solas or onlys of the Reformation. And today we're going to go deeper into this sola, which is called faith alone. We're going to see today, the main point of what we're doing today is that God has one way of saving people, one way of justifying people, and that is by grace, His kindness, through faith in His promises. Let's just speak those, that quotation together. God has one way of saving people by grace through faith in His promises. And so as we do that, uh, right before we read chapter 4, verses 1 through 12 in the text, I want you to just be aware of two things uh, that you can note in your Romans journal. By the way, if you don't have one of these yet, we have a couple copies Uh, Each Sunday, we try to have a few copies out there on the table by the mailbox if you want to grab one. It's never too late to jump into Romans uh, and get one of these journals. So two things I want you to notice. The first thing I want you to notice is that uh, there's these two important words, and these two important words mean the same thing. Twice in our reading, you're going to see the word faith. You might want to circle it or underline it. And twice, you're going to see the word believe or uh, the, the verb believe. And what you need to know is that in uh, this letter of Romans, believe and faith are the same thing. Believe is just the verbal form of the noun faith. In English, we have different words, uh, but in Greek, it's like the same word. But there's a verbal form to believe, to have faith, and then the word, the noun, faith. And that's important to notice because I don't really like the word believe. It's just not a great word. It's kind of a weak word like, uh, like do you believe in ghosts? or something like that. Uh, It's more dealing with like what you believe is factual or true. Now, uh, when we talk about believe or have faith, 
where it's more than that. It's not just, I believe that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, but it's, I place my faith and I rest in that. Um, and so whenever you see faith, it equals believe, and believe equals faith. So you might just want to write that as a little key in the margin. Uh, believe equals faith and vice versa. The second thing I want you to notice is that there's going to be two Old Testament characters in our reading today who demonstrate Paul's point that uh, we are saved in one way, by grace, through faith, and the promises of God. And he uses Abraham and David to prove that point. Now, go with me briefly back to chapter 3, verse 20. From last week and the week before, it says, For by works of the law no human being will be justified or declared innocent in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And then we get to that major turning point in Romans, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God, the saving action of God in Christ to save us has been manifested or revealed apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Now that phrase law and the prophets basically means what you and I now call the Old Testament. And so what Paul's going to do is, is he said, hey, the law and the prophets, the whole Hebrew scripture talks about how we are made right with God by grace through faith and his promises. Now you can imagine somebody hearing this and saying, are you sure, Paul? I disagree. Well, Paul says, okay, fine, let's read the Bible and see that I'm right. So what's going to happen in chapter 4, verses, really all of chapter 4, but especially verses 1 through 12, is Paul's going to show from the law, Abraham, book of Genesis, and the prophets, David, 2 Samuel, and the Psalms, that this is the single way God saves people. Sound good? All right, let's do it. Romans 4, 1 through 12. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised? And just remember as we're reading this, the the word circumcised refers to the Jewish people and uncircumcised refers to the non-Jewish Gentiles. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe or who have faith without being circumcised, so that righteousness might be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had 
before he was circumcised. This is God's word for us today. Amen. So I mentioned before that God has one single way of saving people, by grace, through faith, in the promises of God. And so Paul's going to dig deep into this truth as he reflects on the Old Testament scriptures, starting with the story of Abraham. We just heard that story read in the Old Testament reading, Genesis 15. If you want to read the whole story of Abraham, it's basically Genesis 12 through Genesis 25, but Paul really likes to focus in on Genesis 15 whenever he's talking about being saved through faith in Christ. Let's just read it together. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 3 in the text of Romans. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So let's focus on that word boast briefly. Uh, there were some people during Paul's time, some of his contemporaries, other people who were teachers at the time, who said, you know, Abraham was a really righteous guy. In fact, he was justified by keeping the law even before he had the law. So if you continue reading the, the, the Old Testament, you'll see that the law of God is not given to Israel until Exodus chapter 20 far after, like centuries after Abraham. And yet some of the rabbis at this time were teaching that, you know, Abraham, God revealed the law to him even before the law was given to Moses and he kept that law perfectly and he was so righteous and upstanding that God declared him to be righteous. In fact, God chose him because of his good, upright, moral conduct, because of his works. But Paul says, what does the scripture say? First thing the scripture says, if you, if you read Abraham's narrative, you'll see he wasn't always all that great of a guy. Sometimes we see Abraham living by faith and sometimes we see him acting like a coward. So for example, when he has to go to Egypt because of a famine, he tells Pharaoh, uh, actually Sarah's my sister, lies, because um, he wants to save his own life because he thought that maybe they would seize and take Sarah away. Um, because of her beauty. And so Abraham kind of acts as a coward, right? Or um, God had promised that he would give to Abraham a son, and seeing that his wife was beyond the age of having children, he said, uh, his wife came up with this great idea. She said, why don't you just hook up with my servant girl, Hagar, and you guys can have a kid. And Abraham's like, okay. Um, not a great moral move. And then you see the way that Abraham treats uh, Hagar after that, not a great moment. Uh, so we see Abraham uh, not always being the greatest character. In fact, when Paul says in verse 4 that God justifies the ungodly, uh, many scholars think he's referring to Abraham, who was ungodly, who needed to get justified, right? Uh, so here's how the story goes. And if you would, just right next to verse 3, you might want to write Genesis 15, verse 6. That's what Paul's quoting, Genesis 15, 6. You can go back and read it some other time. So the story goes like this, is that, is that God had made a promise to Abraham. He said, uh, 
I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a mighty nation. Through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And Abraham says, okay, great, God, but I don't have any kids, so how's that going to work out? And at this point, he's thinking, well, maybe I can pass on the promise to, uh, to Eliezer of Damascus, kind of my right-hand man. And um, God appears to Abraham in a vision at that time named Abram. Um, God had not changed his name yet. That happens in chapter 17. God appears to him and, and says, I'm going to give you a son. It's going to be your son. And notice that God is promising something to Abraham that is literally physically impossible because his wife Sarah was beyond the age of having children. It was not going to happen. And so God is presenting Abraham with something that could not happen by his own works. It had to happen by the work of God. And having heard this promise, Abraham says, okay, he has faith. His hands receive and accept the promise that God made him. He doesn't know exactly how it's going to happen, but he says, God, I trust that you're trustworthy. And it says that by that faith, Abraham believed or had faith and he was justified or declared righteous, made right with God. Now, just so that we don't think that Abraham's just an isolated story in the Scriptures, uh, Paul goes on and he talks about David. So that little indentation, the little quote in verse 7 through 8, that's a quotation from Psalm 32. Psalm 32 was written by David, and it may be that David is reflecting on something that happened in 2 Samuel 11 through 12. Uh, we can look at David and say he's a godly guy, he was a man of faith, uh, but also he had some dark moments. Uh, so if you read 2 Samuel 11 through 12, the story goes like this, is that David uh, committed adultery with Bathsheba, who is Uriah's wife, while Uriah was out on the battlefield and she becomes pregnant, and then David tries to cover it up, and then that doesn't work, and so then he has Uriah killed, and then he just kind of goes on with life, pretending like he's the righteous king of Israel, but it says that the thing that David did displeased the Lord, and so uh, David was not in a good place. He was a hypocrite at that time. But it's out of grace and compassion, God sends the prophet Nathan to David to declare to him his sin. And so here we have a, a little painting of uh, Nathan the prophet pointing the finger at David and saying, you messed up. And he said, you sinned against the Lord. And David didn't do what we do sometimes, like, well, I did this because, or actually what I did wasn't that bad. No, David confesses his sin. He says, I've sinned against the Lord. And upon that confession, Nathan absolves him. Nathan says that God has put your sin away. And it's by faith, not by works, right? By faith that David receives that promise and receives reconciliation with God. He's made right with God. And it wasn't by works. David couldn't work his way out of what he did wrong. God proclaimed to him forgiveness, and he believed. And we know that because David went on to write a psalm like Psalm 32 that says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, David's thinking, like me, and whose sins are covered, and blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. And so Paul is using this psalm and this narrative from 2 Samuel to basically show us that like Abraham, who was ungodly and was justified by grace, so also David, who was ungodly, was justified by grace through faith. 
Now, I say this because sometimes, especially in the American church, there's just a lot of bad theology in the American church, um, TV preachers and all that stuff. And, and unfortunately, we've gotten into this maybe default habit of thinking the following. And by the way, I used to believe this, and so if you believe it, you know, we've all been there. Um, this is a false belief. In the Old Testament, people were saved by works, by trying hard, by keeping the law. But in the New Testament, people are saved by grace through faith. The God of the Old Testament, he had really rigid standards, but the God of the New Testament, he's soft and loving. No. <laughs> same God of the Old Testament and New Testament, same character, same righteousness, same saving grace. Uh, Paul's saying that in the Old Testament, people got saved by grace through faith and the promises of God. Now, the direction was different. People were looking forward to the coming of Christ, and through that faith in the coming Messiah, they were saved. We have a different perspective. We're looking back to what God has done in Christ crucified and raised from the dead, and we look backward to that and we're saved. Uh, the other misconception is that, you know, God's plan A for saving us is that we keep the law. So God gave us the law so we could keep it, and if we could keep it, we'd be saved, but we're all sinners, and so we don't really do it, and we never really reach uh, God's standard. And so God launched a plan B. His plan B was Jesus, that Jesus would save us because we all messed it up. But here's the thing. Once again, Jesus is God's plan A all along. The law was given to lead us to Christ. It wasn't given to us as like a life vest. Um, faith is the plan A. In fact, if you want to read on this more, make a little note in your Romans journal that says, note to self, read Hebrews 11. Entirely different author, New Testament author, but Hebrews 11 says, by faith, Noah, by faith, Abraham, by faith, Sarah, by faith, Joshua, by faith, Rahab, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. He's showing that it's by faith and not by works that people are made right with God. Okay, so now that we know that faith, it's through faith alone that people are put into a right relationship with God, we have to ask two questions. The first is, well, what in the world is faith? And how do I get it? Well, the, the, the best way to define faith starting out is just to say what it's not. Sometimes the best way to know what something isn't or is is by talking about what it isn't. And, and so in our text today, faith is not works. It's not effort. It's not doing. It's receiving the work of another, namely the work of Christ. And so look, at me, look with me at, at verses 4 through 5. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. In other words, you work hard, you put in the hours, you sweat, and you get a paycheck. But when it comes to being saved, not the way it works. By works of the law, nobody will be justified, Paul says. But look at verse 5. And to the one who does not work, but believes or has faith in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, justification. Right? You see it? The first way we need to think about faith is that it's just not works. Another thing to talk about faith is that faith is not just like good vibes or good feelings or confidence, like, 
You know, a lot of like popular songs have the word faith, like you just got to have faith or don't give up on your faith, you know, and I don't think we're talking about the same thing. Uh, as Christians, we don't have faith in faith or just, hey, I think things are going to turn out okay. That might just be, you know, being delusional because things might not turn out okay. Um, no, faith is in someone and something they've done, and our faith is in Christ and what He's done for us upon the cross. That's where our faith is located. It's, it's not faith in faith. It's not just good feelings. It's faith in what God has done. But to talk about faith more positively in terms of what it is, uh, I've got three brief definitions. Uh, the first is to talk about faith really as trust. Uh, when babies are born, at least in my three-time experience of being there, uh, the first thing they do is they take the baby and they put it with mom. They put the baby on mom's chest and it's important right after birth to have this skin-to-skin -skin contact where the baby can hear mom's heartbeat and feel mom's warmth. And there's even like this interesting exchange of hormones going on where baby and mom are bonding and there's this attachment that takes place. Uh, and it's just so important for babies to continue to have that skin-to-skin -skin attachment to their parents. And, and really what happens is, is trust is created. The babies then grow up and say, hey, this world is a safe place. I can trust because I've got a safe and loving parent. Uh, and, and even that's like biological. It's just the way we're hardwired uh, to grow up and develop in this world and, and as healthy people. Well, I would say that that's really what faith is. It's, it's trust. It's, you know, God... Uh, places us upon the work of Jesus, his life and death and resurrection, and it's through that that we attach to God. We, we bond with God. We learn to trust God. We say, I have a good God who loves me, who gave his son for me, and that means that I can take some risks in life. I can maybe suffer some loss for Christ, right? Because I have a good God who loves me and who saved me by his grace. So the first way is to talk about faith in terms of trust or attachment. Uh, the second way to talk about faith is this. Um, we, we had a wonderful pastors conference this past week at Eunice. Uh, all the pastors, LCMS pastors, got together at uh, Eunice, and, and for two days we had a conference on, guess what the conference was on? Romans. We didn't even plan that. Like Pastor Tim and I back in September, October, we said we should preach on Romans. And then around November or so, we got an email from the Nebraska district saying, hey, pastor's conference in March on Romans. We were like, yes, thank you, God. Uh, so our uh, conference speaker, Dr. Michael Middendorf, a Roman scholar from Christ College, Concordia, Irvine, um, he, he shared with us a couple creative definitions of faith. Uh, one of these was shared with him by his colleague, um, in the theology department, that faith is honesty about dependence. Honesty about dependence. And we actually see that played out in our reading from Luke's gospel today. We have two people who go to God, the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee is not dependent upon God. He's trusting in his own righteousness. And so he lists off all the things he's done for God and the things he hasn't done He's very, very happy with himself, right? Uh, but you'll notice that Jesus says he goes home not justified, meaning he's still guilty 
because he's boasting in himself. But then you have uh, the story of this unrighteous guy, this guy named, uh, this, this fair, uh, tax collector rather, the tax collector, he does this kind of thing and he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. What is that? That's honesty about dependence. He says, I don't have any good works, so my only hope is that God will be merciful to me. Uh, isn't that how we ought to show up to church every Sunday? I mean, even show up to every day is, God, <laughs> if it depends on me, I'm going to mess it up. I need you. I need your mercy. I need your forgiveness. I need your grace. Be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says that that guy went home justified, righteous. Or think last week about the thief on the cross. He's got maybe hours or minutes to live. He's nailed to a piece of wood. He can't really do anything good for Jesus. But he turns to Jesus and in a moment of honesty about his dependence, he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what does Jesus say? Today you'll be with me in paradise. Faith is honesty about dependence. Another way uh, uh, our conference speaker defined faith based on um, the late seminary professor at St. Louis Seminary, Norman Nagel, he said that faith is letting yourself be given to. You know, if somebody offers to buy your dinner, you're typically like, no, nah, I'll pay. Right? We don't like to be given to sometimes. Uh, it's humbling, but faith is letting yourself be given to, letting God place into your hands his gifts and calling them your own. When I was in high school, I had a really hard time understanding this. I thought, you know, it can't be that good. Like, maybe I haven't done enough. Maybe I haven't prayed enough. Maybe I haven't loved God enough. And so I went to visit my pastor in about junior year of high school, and I said, I said, Pastor, I don't know, like, if I'm really a good enough Christian or... And, and he pulled out his wallet, and he gave me a dollar. And he said, did you do anything to receive that? Did you work to get this? I said, no. He said, is that a gift or a work? I said, it's a gift. He said, do you get it? I was like, oh. <laughs> but it's easy to forget. And so I took that dollar and I pinned it at the, on the ceiling of my bedroom wall so that, you know, when I go to sleep at night and I saw that dollar up there, I'd say, yeah, it's a grace. It's a gift. It's not by my works. It's by Christ. And actually, that dollar is still in my childhood bedroom. Um, my parents just left it up because they need to be reminded, too, that it's by grace. And it's kind of interesting to go visit Grandma and Grandpa's house with my kids, and, and, and the kids sleeping in that room are like, why is there a dollar on the ceiling? And it's just a great opportunity to say, let's talk about how we get right with God. How are we saved? It's by grace. It's a gift. It's something God places in your hands, and you receive it. God gives us that gift. Um, and yeah, so I texted my mom. I said, hey, mom, can you take a picture of that dollar on the ceiling and send it to me for my sermon? Um, and she did. So um, let's move on now. Before we move to the next point, you need to know that this faith, this trust in Christ is not something that you can create. It's not like a decision. You just say, I have decided today to trust God. You can't do that 
You see, sin is so deep in us that we actually can't choose to trust God any more than a baby can choose to trust mom. Do babies choose to trust their parents? No, they're placed in a safe, loving environment and they naturally trust. And so we actually can't create this faith in ourselves. Luther says in the small catechism, I believe that I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ or come to him, but the Holy Spirit has called me. And so how do we get this faith? And it's important to know how to get it because if you don't have it, you're not saved, right? You're not justified. Well, Paul gives us a simple answer in Romans 10, 17. It'll be a while till we get to Romans 10, but this is what it says. It says, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And so the way to get faith is by doing what we're doing right now. In this moment, in this preaching, God is giving and sustaining and strengthening faith, real time. This is why being in worship is so incredibly important, because when we're hearing God's word, God is working and sustaining faith. When we're not hearing God's word, when we absence ourselves from God's word, uh, faith begins to wither, right? Um, a great quote here from the Lutheran Confessions, the Augsburg Confession, Article 5. If you've got some time on your hands, this is a great thing to read, by the way. Um, lots of good stuff in here. Uh, so Article 4 of the Augsburg Confession is where, uh, like, this is at the time of the Reformation, Luther and Melanchthon and some of these guys who were uh, leaders of the Reformation, they, they, they talked in Article 4 about how we're justified by grace through faith and the promises of God. So basically what I'm saying in the sermon, what Paul's saying in, in Romans 4. But in, Roman, in uh, Article 5, the question of how we get this faith is addressed. He says, so that we may obtain this faith, the ministry of teaching the gospel and administering the sacraments was instituted. For through the word and the sacraments, as through instruments, the Holy Spirit is given who affects or creates faith where and when it pleases God and those who hear the gospel. This is why your pastors are always so concerned that you're in church. Because when we're in church, we are in a faith incubating environment. Every single thing that we do in the worship service is aimed at taking Christ and placing him into your heart by faith. The, the focus of every sermon isn't to whip people up into a frenzy to be better people, be better moral people. That flows out of our faith. The goal of the sermon is to place Christ crucified and risen before your eyes and in your heart so that you might trust you might receive. You might be honest about your dependence. Why do we come to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper? Because once again, the, the, the goal of that time in worship is to place Christ into your hands, into your heart, so that you might trust Him and live by faith, that your faith might be sustained. Uh, a lot of times we think that worship is something we do. And sure, there are some things we do in worship, like we sing and we pray and we praise and we give our offerings and we shake each other's hands and stuff like that, but all of that is not the main point of worship. The main point of worship is what God is giving you in Christ to sustain your faith. And so anything that we do in worship, we're just responding. And so I really want us to think about worship this way. I want you to think about worship as like that skin-to-skin -skin contact between baby and mother. 
When, when babies have that skin-to-skin contact with mom or dad, it creates trust, it creates faith, it creates attachment. And when we're in worship, this is God placing you close to His heart so you can hear His heartbeat and His love for you so He can give to you so that you might have a stronger attachment and faith. And anything else we do in worship like pray or praise or give offerings flows out of that attachment. Do you see it? This is what God's doing in worship. Um, I want to just close with this thought because uh, this service right now is being recorded for NTV. And uh, that NTV service that we're doing is, is really, we want to get the Word of God into people's hearts and minds who can't come to worship. And so I talk to a lot of people in nursing homes or people who are homebound who just can't get here and they say that they're so thankful for God's Word because they would be here if they could, Right? Uh, but I really want to offer just an encouragement to those, especially those members of Holy Cross who are still at home but healthy and normally out and about in the community. Really, this is the time to come back. It really is. Um, because you're not getting the full experience. You're missing the Lord's Supper. You're missing the gift of God's people, right? And Um, It just gives me so much joy when I see somebody show up that I haven't seen since March of 2020. And really, this is the time. And if you're listening to this and you're from a different church, your church misses you and feels your your absence. Your pastors miss you. And so this is really the time to come back and to experience that that full experience of, of attachment, of being nourished in worship, because that's God's design for His people. Um, May God grant it to us for the sake of Jesus. Amen.